And here's what I want to ask you. What is holding you back? What is the thing that's holding you back from going after your dreams and from finding meaningful work you love? Aren't you ready to wake up to the possibilities that are in your life and go after the things you've dreamt of? It's time for you to feel alive again, lit up, and for you to know that you're deserving and you are worthy for the future that's waiting for you. I want you to feel fulfilled and find abundance in your life. I think it's time and I'm ready to help you get started. Now I'm your host, Kristen, of Building a Life You Love. And each week on the show, we're going to help you figure out how you do go after your dreams and find work you love. Here we go. Let's get started. Hi, today on the podcast, we have such an important and rich episode We are going to talk about how do we live our best lives, even in the midst of chronic illness, chronic pain, continuous stress, whether it's ourselves or someone that we care about that's living, you know, with that situation. It's so important that we're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about communication and how we really have to get to the heart of what's, you know, what's really going on and what is needed, how our lives have changed, but how in the midst of all that, we can still live beautiful, wonderful lives but we do have to make adjustments and we do have to shift our mindset about the way we can live in the world. So take a listen. Hi, today on the show, I would like to welcome Dr. Kevin Payne. He is a social psychologist, an entrepreneur and author, and he's the podcast host of Your Life Lived Well, also a speaker and teacher. And I am looking forward to this conversation today because it's such an important topic to talk about living our best lives, even in the midst of a chronic illness, chronic pain, stress, or anything else that's something we're living with for a long time. So I want to thank you for being with us first and foremost, Kevin, and just welcome you to the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Kristen, and I'll try to live up to your intro. (laughs) Okay, well, I would first love for you to tell us a little bit about your journey, you know, the things you've gone through in your life and, you know, what that's looked like and what you're doing now. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, my journey is is kind of an extended edition. So I'm going to give you like four bullet points. Uh, one is, as you identified, I'm a social psychologist. So my doctorate in sociology and psychology. I spent 15 years as a professor. I left about a decade ago to become a tech entrepreneur. And uh, I have done data science and that sort of thing, you know, how we model because I specialize in research methods. But I also, from the 90s, have been doing research on the substantive question of why do some people succeed and others fail when confronted with an extreme circumstance? And, and, Once I was actually diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is my second bullet point, uh, that became really germane to my own life. So uh, how do you live well even when there's something big, bad, nasty that's just dropped down into your body with you and you can't get away from it? So that's where I've been focused. And as I, as I was diagnosed and as I lived through years of being a caregiver to a wife with an advanced cancer, I started focusing a little more narrowly on, well, how do we live well when we've got chronic distress, pain, and illness in our lives? And, and all of the work that I do now has followed from that. 
So that's that's bullet points one and two. And I don't know, there's probably a third in there that was somewhere. Uh, the last thing I probably should mention is that, you know, I've been through some very dark times, as many of us have, and as many of us have with chronic illnesses. Mm-hmm. MS is gets kind of ugly sometimes. And it's one of those that most people, they've heard the name, but they don't really understand what it is. And so uh, in, in a in a very simple sense, my central nervous system, my brain and my spinal cord is being eaten away from the inside by my own immune system. And so that means that that my symptoms can be physical, behavioral, mental, cognitive, emotional, etc. And so the last thing that I will mention to introduce myself is that I am an enthusiastic skydiver. And that was a childhood dream that I eventually, you know, that I started at one point in the 90s, started doing the training, started doing all that. Then education and kids and career and then eventually health got in the way and I gave up on it. And then in 2019, I decided to do something for myself, purely for myself for the first time in way too long. And I went back and there's a whole odyssey there about becoming a skydiver again. But now I'm over 600 jumps. I've got all the licenses and coach rating. And that was an odyssey to get there as well. Yeah, lots and lots to your story, you know, like so many, but so much there we could unpack and talk about today. So we'll see what we can weave in. So, of course, the first thing I have to ask you is one of your first bullets was about that you've really um, been dabbling with researching, thinking about this question about how do some people succeed or have lives that are more fulfilling than people that maybe are struggling. So can you tell me a little bit about that? What have you uncovered? What have you found about that question and what you've been looking into in that regard? Yeah, so I was, I started looking at, at a version of that question back in the 90s, looking at educational achievement. And so why some students from difficult circumstances uh, do well and others don't. And, and over the years, then that morphed to become more broadly concerned with, well, how do we succeed at these human type things when we're always distressed or always resource constrained? And then eventually, you know, it, it kind of narrowed back again to this issue of how do we deal with a chronic illness? Because mm-hmm. our, our cultural archetype for being sick is acute illness. Mm-hmm. And we understand it implicitly through that acute lens. Mm-hmm. And and our medical health and wellness professionals are trained through that acute lens. And so the presumption is, oh, I'm sick, I have you know a bug or an injury, I feel bad, I groan about it, I laze around, I take my meds in a few days or weeks, I'm back to normal again. Everybody cuts me some slack in the meantime. And for medical professionals, the idea is I'm going to identify a medical problem prescribe a medical solution, wash my hands of it, and send them back to their lives. And that model completely breaks down because over half of all Americans are now living with at least one chronic health diagnosis. 18% of us have five or more chronic health diagnoses. 
And the rest of the world isn't so far behind where we're at. They're, mm-hmm. they're heading in our direction. So in 2019, we spent, what, around $3.8 trillion or so in healthcare spend in the United States. Mm-hmm. 87% of it was for chronic health care. So it's just it's just mind boggling. We've got a system that's set up culturally, organizationally, socially for acute care. But that's not what we need anymore. We need a different set of tools. So if you only look at chronic illness as a medical problem with medical solutions, you're going to fail. Because that medical problem seeps out into how we think feel, behave, relate, and operate in the world. And we know that if we look at chronic, if if we look at quality of life, broadly speaking, and and if if we look at it like that, then we realize that there are many cognitive, emotional, behavioral, social, environmental things we can do to improve our quality of life and our quality of health. So since I'm not the right kind of doctor to deal with the medical part of it, I'm focused on what are these non-medical things that we can actually do Mm -hmm. to improve that quality of life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when I skimmed through your, uh, the preview of your book, you know, I saw the part in there you're talking about, there's the definition, like you just talked about, about acute uh, illness, sick and well, right? That's kind of the construct Mm -hmm. in which, we were brought up the, that we understand, but then there's this whole right. other category that you just said, right? All that money, all these people, you know, I think you said, I think it's one in five, maybe more than that now has right a chronic um, or has chronic pain of some sort. But what, what was the other category you would say? Is it just chronic illness or did you, I didn't really see that you kind of put another name to that. Is there? No, it's, 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 it's chronic illness. Yeah, and okay. I think that's the best way to, to think about it. Got because it. Okay. What we have to do is we have to realize that there's there's a big gray area in between mm-hmm. sick and well. Right. And we've got to become more comfortable acknowledging that and living there. Yeah. And talking about it and and then doing the things you're doing, which is how do we learn, get educated, and then apply these strategies that are these non-medical strategies and support? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Can you go into... How do we, well, first of all, I guess two things. If we're living with a chronic illness or chronic pain, how do we make sure that we're actually, um, you know, addressing our chronic, I mean, I'm sorry, our cognitive, our emotional, behavioral, uh, the, the social needs we have, you know, because so, I think a lot of people like to your point, the doctors don't address that, you know, so how do we even look at those areas or get educated on that? And then how do we ask for help, you know, if it's in those areas or something else? Okay, shoot me some small questions, why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but this is really crucial because humans are social animals. And we all of the research, decades of research, thousands of studies are, are completely clear in, in the idea that when we become disconnected from other people, mm-hmm. then our quality of life and our health take a nosedive. And when we live with the chronic illness, we become more vulnerable to that disconnection. And we have to become more aware of meeting those needs. 
And, and that begins with some honest conversations. Because one of the really interesting things with getting a chronic diagnosis, if, if you have been, quote unquote, healthy up to this point, is that suddenly there is a big negative valuation attached to your identity. You are a sick person. And no matter how we want to spin it, being a sick person is not fun. And it's not fun for you, and it's not fun for the people around you. And while you can't get away from it, they can. And sometimes they choose to. And that is devastating. And it's and it's devastating all the way around. Because because we're we have to be careful not to demonize anybody in this circumstance, even if they make that decision. Because generally speaking, they're doing their best. But just like you, nobody is trained for this. Mm -hmm. Nobody understands that those relationships need to be reframed and renegotiated. And all of those, because all of our relationships, we have implicitly negotiated some kind of give and take Mm -hmm. in them. And and now that has to be changed because there are some things that we have to accommodate. And, you know, I've been on both sides of that relationship as as the caregiver and as the person needing care. And too often we we can get to the point where we don't communicate. And it's not because we don't want to communicate. It's because. Yeah, it sucks. And you don't even want to talk about it yourself, right? You you want to find something more joyful uh, right. to, to interact about. Mm-hmm. And we all know things about, like, say, you know, the Gottmans have done decades of wonderful research on uh, relationships. And they find that in intimate relationships, there's, there's a, a, about a five to one ratio of positive to negative, uh, you know, interactions that you need to maintain. And by the way, you can extend that to other relationships. Other relationships have different ratios involved. But but in general, we want our interactions with other people to be mostly positive. Mm-hmm. And but now there's there's this chunk of inherently negative interactions that you're going to have to lump into that relationship. And and how do you become aware of that and and able to talk about that on both sides and and to say that both of you you know maybe feel offended or betrayed at at having to deal with this now because you didn't sign up for it right even though it's it's part of life so so having those conversations and being willing to to be open about hey I don't really want to talk about this either and I really wish this didn't count against our ratio but I've got things that that we need to get out into the open so that we can bring more positive into our relationship. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things you're talking about is, and most of us don't like this to begin with, you're talking about being vulnerable, right? And you're mm-hmm. talking about being vulnerable in a way that already doesn't feel comfortable because we, no one asked for this these conditions, right? I mean, so I think that's part of it, right? Is there's a lot of us, well, we, none of us probably like to be vulnerable to some extent, but 
there's definitely groups of people that really don't want to go there, right? To your point, I don't want to seem needy. I don't want to seem like I'm going to inconvenience for anyone else, right? I don't want to be vulnerable. Uh, so how do we first broach that or even know how to? Is it just because we realize, for instance, okay, maybe I can't do the same things around the house that I could do before that. So maybe we need to get someone in to help. Like, so how do we even broach that conversation, you know, start having these conversations because it's obviously hard. You know, it's obviously something that people are struggling with. I think one of the things that we can do is we can schedule regular checkups Mm -hmm. in our relationships so that it doesn't become a running firefight. It's, it's, you know, within that relationship, it's, we're going to set aside this time and place to openly have this sort of communication. And it may be maybe every week, it may be every month, it may be quarterly, you know, whatever you need to have. Yeah. But, but this is the space that you're setting aside to say, we understand that the normal rules are, are suspended here. And this is about us being long term and big picture. And dealing with things that you know, everything from 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 really deep existential issues to those petty little nitpicky things mm-hmm. that are bothering you, because we all know that the petty little nitpicky things are never the true issue. Mm-hmm. It's all it's yeah. always an indicator of something deeper. Right. And and I think most people do better with this when they don't feel like they're blindsided with mm-hmm. this kind of conversation right. where, where they feel like they have the opportunity to prepare and that it's going to be mutual so that right. each of you are going to have an opportunity to air those questions and those grievances and, and to, to try to reach some point where we feel like we can, we can move forward and not have to deal with that day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then what about from the caregiver perspective? Like you said, one, you've you've been in that position, you know, for many years. And then two, you obviously at this point also educate and help people in that role as well. So mm-hmm. what about one, how do we talk to the caregiver? But two, let's say it's just even our friend, the caregiver. How do we help right. them? Well, and that's that's massive because caregivers completely get lost in this system. I mean, we know that the education for life skills, living with a chronic diagnosis yourself Mm -hmm. are, you know, to be charitable less than ideal. Yeah. And, and they are pretty much non-existent for caregivers. Mm -hmm. So, but one of the, one of the really interesting things, because in, in constructing the book and the curriculum and all that, I actually sat down and I interviewed hundreds of people with diagnoses and caregivers. Mm-hmm. I surveyed thousands. I looked at thousands of studies and meta-analyses. And once you back off from the list of, of diagnostic criteria, mm-hmm. the challenges that both diagnosed and caregiver are facing are remarkably similar. And that's because we are distressed. Right. And humans only have one system to deal with distress. 
once our parasympathetic nervous system gets going, you know, it's ramped up the and it's and it's headed out on its path. Mm-hmm. And and if we don't understand what that is, then we don't we we get carried away with that, and we, and we don't understand what to do with it. And and most of us don't realize that there is good stress and bad stress, you stress and distress, mm-hmm. and they trigger the same things. But what is different is in how we frame it. Mm-hmm. And so, so many of these challenges are the same because a we get distressed, we frame it as as fear, mm-hmm. and and we've got you know the quote unquote fight or flight response going on, even though it's really like eight or nine F's, if you look at it. I like uh-huh. to call it the effort response because <laughs> yeah. there's there's all kinds of other stuff going on there. But equally, uh-huh. if we always get ramped up on that side of the cycle, it is a cycle. Mm-hmm. So you've got to go back to if you if this is the edge, then you've got to go back to your home, to your place where you're feeling satisfied and content. Mm-hmm. And able to rest, recover, relax, and and so forth. Not only individually, but in the context we're talking about here, mm-hmm. as a relationship, as right. a caregiver, as a friend or loved one or whoever, and that person together, so that you can have that kind of recuperative experience, not just as individuals. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So I think, you know, in other words, whatever strategy or thing we do it's that we have to find that space and that time to rest to rejuvenate to get help if that's what we need or to read something or do something enjoy you know that's enjoyable or or um exciting whatever it might be but that's a really Mm -hmm. good point so not just individually but in the context of our community and in our relationships i think that's that's good. I've not heard that often in that context. And I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like you're saying um, about that research where if all of our interactions with our, you know, the people in our lives that we're close to are mm-hmm. always about, for instance, like support of that person, right. In, you know, those health things, then to your mm-hmm. point, you're never having those times to do exactly what you just said. And so I think that's, that's a really important point. It's not so much how or what you do. It's that you're continuing to grow in those, in those relationships and then have that time, you know, to, like you said, to leave the edge and come back to a quieter, calmer place where our parasympathetic nervous system can calm down. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's, there's something else I would add Uh to this as well. And that is, we really suck at perspective taking. Mm-hmm. And so, so everybody is like, oh, you know, put yourself in my position or I'm trying to take your perspective. And, and that's great. We should try to do that. Uh-huh. And I, I'm not diminishing that. But the research tells us pretty clearly that the closest people to one another, so say long-term cohabitating partners, mm-hmm. when asked to make an attribution about the other's, you know, motivations, mm-hmm is only right about 50% of the time. Wow. So that is the best case scenario. Right. What we have to do is we have to learn to ask. Right. And then you have to learn to to honestly share what that mm-hmm. is. Right. Because, and, and there's, there's one particular dynamic where this... Uh, 
really goes awry. And, and that's, we often misinterpret what's going on in the underlying purpose of a conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, sometimes we're just hanging out, shooting the breeze and, and, and that's fine. But when we're having real conversations, mm-hmm. they fall into two categories. They're either to support or to solve. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you make the wrong presumption about what the other person needs in yeah. that conversation, then you're doing the best you can to try to do what you think you need to do. Mm-hmm. And people get offended really quickly. So if you can just learn to say, okay, if we're having a conversation, whose needs are we dealing with right now? Mm-hmm. And then the person whose needs are being dealt with gets to say, for me, this is about support or it's about solving. So yeah. either we're going to, we're emotionally bonding or we are looking for some kind of functional resolution. I and we like all get how, on the same page. Right. I like how simply you put that. And, you know, I do talk about this on occasion, but from a very, you know, non-specific, non-doctoral level, which is, you know, we have to both, we have to ask and then tell when we're having conversation, because I've been in this situation and say to them, like, for instance, if, you know, I'm talking to my husband or girlfriend and I say, well, wait, are you, do you just want me to listen? Like, do you just need to vent or are you asking for help? Like with something, right. Or do you want a suggestion solutions? But I'm getting better at that, but it's hard for us, right? Because to your point, we just want to go directly to what our brain believes we're being asked to do or, or the context of the conversation, but that doesn't mean it's the same for me and the person I'm having the conversation with. So, you know, I like how clear and simple you're the two buckets where you discuss versus I I've said it in a little more broad way, but I think that's really, really great. You know, to think about it, is this about support and emotional connection or is it about solutions or solving, mm-hmm. I guess is what you said. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Cool. Yeah. So what I would ask you next. So first, okay. So I really like that. I think that's super helpful for people. So let's dig into now um, the quality of life. How do you, you know, you went, you've been through these dark places and you can, one, I'm curious, how do we step through and step out of um, those types of you know, times where we're just kind of at our lowest low? So what helped you there? Mm-hmm. And then after that, we'll, I'd like to jump into how do we live our best lives, even in the midst of, you know, a chronic diagnosis? Sure. Uh, so, so for me personally, I was dealing with a, a really awful exacerbation. So one thing that people need to know about MS is the symptoms can come and go and, and they can get really serious. We can relapse and then they can remit and they, you know, in my case, they don't completely go away, but they get more manageable. Mm-hmm. And so I was dealing with an exacerbation that my then neurologist had failed to inform me about. And, and I didn't find out until later with another neurologist who we, we decided to go back through all of my test results. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, at that point uh, on the MRI, my right frontal temporal region, region was lit up like a Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. And, and so... I was dealing with some pretty serious cognitive issues mm-hmm. and, and didn't understand the depths of them. 
at that time. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's higher cognition, that's emotional processing, that's social processing, that's language processing. There's there's a lot that's going on uh-huh. in that area. And I'm a brain guy. I mean, that's how I interface with the world. I can right. I can I can deal with my physical symptoms more easily than I can deal with my cognitive symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I do have them. And and that's that was really frustrating for me to get to the place in my life where I could admit that mm-hmm. because I'm a brain guy. That's how I how I do it. So so I was my brain was not functioning well at tasks that it had always done well at. And I got profoundly depressed over it because I knew something was different, but I wasn't getting any answers from my neurologist at the time. And it was, it was really awful. It was really ugly. And my life pretty well came apart. And in the depths of this, which is you know, my son was about 14 years old, was about 14 years old at the time. And he looked at me one day and he said, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. And on the one hand, that's kind of a cheeky thing for a teenager to say. And so it's kind of funny. But on the other hand, uh, that was kind of soul crushing to hear as well. Uh, because because you, you want your kids to look up to you. and and so. I was pretty much beside myself and uh, my family came apart and my dog died dramatically in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I, I was even almost struck by lightning. It was, it was just wow. mind boggling. It was, it was like, I was, I was, I felt like I was living the book of Job and, wow. and I hit the bottom and I realized that, you know, my son was correct. I had, gotten so wrapped up in all of the awful things that were happening to me that I had I'd been kicking the can down the road on my own self-care trying to deal with this crisis and the next crisis and the next crisis and never getting to the point where I had the buffer to to then feel like I could deal with my self-care so I decided and I really had just about given up on everything at this point. And I decided I'm going to give myself one more chance. My, I'm going to give myself the chance to do something that I know I'm not good at. Because I was having trouble getting my body to obey what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. So I decided I'm going to become a licensed skydiver. A legit skydiver. Mm-hmm. Even though I couldn't, you know, I'm falling down on the ground uh, anyway. I might as well go up in the air and fall with style. <laughs> and so, yeah, wow. So, uh, I I did that not just to reclaim a childhood dream, but I had become afraid of my own body, mm-hmm. and I had withdrawn, and my world had become really small. And that's not the kind of person I'd always been. I'd always been the kind of person that went out and enthusiastically collected new experiences. Uh-huh. So this was my thing. I was going to fling myself at the earth. And this is one of those things. Every time I exit an airplane, 
we normally jump it from 14,000 feet. From 14,000 feet, when I leave the door, my life expectancy is now 82 seconds. Mm-hmm. I have 82 seconds before I impact. So in the back of my head, a little voice says 82 seconds. Yeah. And, and I know that unless I save myself, because nobody else is going to do it, right. I have got to save myself. Otherwise, I've got 82 seconds left. Now, that's a, that's a really radical, extreme form of exposure therapy. But this was my way, because in 2019, I, I logged about 140 jumps or so and, and, you know, I, I, and got my first couple of licenses. Well, in 2020, I decided I'm going to jump better than once a day, every day for a year. And I logged 370 jumps in, in 2020 because I wanted to get past 500 because that's a magic number in skydiving and all the licenses and stuff. Uh-huh. But, but my point was I was going to trip my fight or flight response every day for a year and then save myself every time. And I needed that to give me this big swing in confidence to carry into the rest of the world so that I could finish the book and build the company and do all the other things that I wanted to do with my life. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, first of all, you're right. Not everybody necessarily has that, you know, I'm going to go do this. But what I love about it is you pick something, one that you had interest in, right? Even though you'd you'd been Mm -hmm. through this dark, hard place, you know, and kind of been more isolated and, you know, more head down. So one, I like that you pick something that you hadn't done. In other words, a new challenge, new goal, a new experience. Mm -hmm. It was all three, I guess. And then you, uh, but then you also kind of tied it back, you know, like if I can do this, then like, like what's it telling mm-hmm. yourself? How's it changing your mindset? So that's, that's really interesting. And I did see that in your book. I'd written that down 82 seconds from the plane hitting the, gr- I mean, I'm sorry, from the plane to the ground. If you do something mm-hmm. wrong, you're that's the end, right. Or most likely the end. Yeah. Um, wow. First of all, 500 jumps in a year. That is amazing. But yeah. So with the, with the, your personal um, advice be to others that even if you're at that point where, you know, you're feeling low or isolated down, step into something new, whether it's a tiny thing or a big thing, but something that will give you a little hope, a little glimmer that there, there's more to life. Yeah. And this is, this is a major topic in the book. I call it the edge mm-hmm. and, and the edge is a ratio. It's, it's a, whatever we want to do that's in front of us right now has a demand to it. Mm-hmm. And if, and if it's higher than our capacity, we're overwhelmed. Right. If the demand is a lot higher than our capacity, we can deliver in that moment. We're traumatized, but some of the best human experiences that we have are flow experiences where our capacity is just slightly more than the demand in front mm-hmm. of us. And, and, and our parasympathetic nervous system is being triggered in a good way. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're succeeding. We're competent. We're, we're doing this. So in order for this to work, you have to be brutally honest about where your edge actually is. Mm-hmm. Because in order to grow, you can't overwhelm yourself. You can't over-traumatize yourself. You've got to meet yourself at your true edge. Mm-hmm. And then give yourself a chance to relax and grow and then go there again. And then because what we're building is we're building 
new habits. We're building new automaticity. We're growing at those edges. And all of my edges are not crazy extreme edges, out, right. you know, jumping out of an airplane. Uh-huh. Sometimes my edge is in the morning when I can't get my hands to work mm-hmm. and I can't get my meds into my mouth. Right. It's a, yeah, you know, that's a humiliating little small edge. Absolutely. But it's still one of my honest edges. And mm-hmm. I had to figure out a way to deal with that in, in right. that moment. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is whatever your edge is, honestly, identify what it is and then grow and right. then and, and get there repeatedly and you will find that what you thought were your apparent edges you are often able to grow beyond and that's where you find hope and joy and accomplishment and and all of these good things in life that give us a sense of agency and allow us to keep moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I really like that. I like that concept. I like that idea. And to your point, it's not about just like something big and challenging. It could be, okay, I haven't been spending time with people or meeting anyone new. So your edge might just be, I'm super uncomfortable going to a, a group of group event, but I could maybe meet someone I already knew for coffee, right? Like that might be, just exactly. beyond what you're comfortable with right now. But to your point, it's sort of like this goal and this thing that'll give you growth, but not to your point, not too far because to your point, it can be overwhelming and then it, you might retreat if it's just too much at one, at one point or at one step, I guess. Wow, that, yeah, and, that's and it, it is, there's, yeah, there's, there's no shame in undershooting to begin with right. as you're trying to figure out what your actual edge is mm-hmm. because you'll recognize it when you get there. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then what about, it? okay, so that was the first part, and you might have somewhat talked about the second part, but the, the quality of life, um, how do we just make sure that we're living, you know, our best life, you know, regardless of where we find our physical or mental, you know, body, you know, even if it's not where we want it to be. Okay, so here's, this, this is from chapter 13. Um, there's there's actually only six things that that when we look back on them, make us feel like we've had a good life. Mm -hmm. They are all experiences. Usually they are experiences with other people. They're Mm -hmm. experiences when we feel accomplished. There are experiences when we feel, you know, those those kinds of things. And so what we want to do is we want to collect experiences that make us feel in six ways, happy, satisfied, functional, engaged, meaningful, and secure. Mm-hmm. And we need all of those, just not too much at a time, because we get satiated, right? Our system, you know, we okay. So now we've got enough of that for right now. Now we got to do something else. So, so what I'm saying is, we need to regularly have experiences where we feel each of those ways. Yeah, I 100%. That makes a lot of sense, and. You know, I know not that these line maybe exactly, but, you know, even, um, you know, the book and blog five or gets to the dying. Right. I mean, but it comes down to did people, you know, did they hit the I mean, she might not describe it like exactly like you did, but do they hit these mm-hmm. certain things? Did they have rich relationships? Did they have friendships? Right. It's it's all these kind of things. Did you say what mm-hmm. you needed to say? Right. Did you have impact? But I think that's that's right. fantastic. And um, just before we wrap it up, do you recommend people? 
I mean, do you write those things down to make sure you're doing them or you just feel like, you know, when you're out of whack in an area. So you kind of just try to revisit like, oh, am I doing something that's. We, we are not nearly as competent observers of ourself as uh-huh. we like to think we are. Right. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of journaling. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, all the research supports this. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. Tap, tap a few bullet points into a file on your phone mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. But having that and being, you know, and I'm an obsessive research methodologist. I collect 80 different variables on myself every day. So, uh, wow. you know, it's whole quantified self going thing going on and, and running models and that sort of thing. But what, what is important is that you spend some time reflecting on you every day. Mm-hmm. Put it this way. We know now, especially in the last few years, that we need to do a better job of taking care of our relationships with mm-hmm. other people. And what I will, will say is that everything we know about building a good relationship with another person applies to you building a good relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. Because if you treated you, you know, if you if you treated someone else the way you treat yourself, would you still be in their lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so most of us are stuck sandwiched in this body in a dysfunctional relationship with someone we don't like very much mm-hmm. because they don't treat us very well. And and we're the only person that can do something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. So would any last um things you want to leave us with before we find out how people can connect with you and learn more about what you have going on? You know, I would just reiterate, be kind and be patient. Yeah. And and right. those are things that we have to practice to do well. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Be kind and patient to ourselves and to those around us, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So good. Okay. So Kevin, how can people find out about your book and your podcast and all the great things you have going on? I'll try to make it easy. They can go to yourlifelivedwell.co, or if that's a little difficult to remember, then go to justjump.life. And all of the links are there for social and for the book and the podcast and all, all kinds of goodies. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for going or being on with us today and sharing both your personal journey and story and the way that you're helping people and all the nuggets of wisdom that you shared with us today. I think it was really uh, insightful and helpful. Well, I've been delighted and thank you so much for the conversation, Kristen. Well, that episode, I just think there was so much richness in there. There was so much honesty, so many things we can all take away, whether ourselves or someone else we love are living with one of these long-term chronic conditions or whether we're just going through life. We have partners, we have people we care about communicating, understand other people's needs, listening, Being able to say what we need to say is so important. And then also finding things that bring us joy and finding a way to do those things regardless of our physical or our mental state. So I loved it. I think it's so important. I'd love it if you'd share this episode with someone else that could really benefit from hearing these things. And I want to leave you with some words from Shauna Nyquist in her book, Cold Tangerines, 
that I think really spoke to what we can still experience, the beauty we can still have in our lives, even in the midst of very hard things. Shauna says, but when you realize the story of your life could be told a thousand different ways, that you could tell it over and over as a tragedy, but you choose to call it an epic, that's when you start to learn what celebration is. When what you see in front of you is so far outside of what you dreamed, but you have the belief, the boldness, the courage to call it beautiful instead of calling it wrong, that's celebration. When you can invest yourself deeply and unremittingly in the life that surrounds you instead of declaring yourself out of the game once and for all, because what's happened to you is too bad, too deep, too ugly for anyone to expect you to move on from. That's the good, rich place. That's the place where the things that looked for all intents and purposes like curses start to stand up and shimmer and dance. And you realize with a gasp, they may have been blessings all along, or maybe not. Maybe they were curses, in fact. But the force of your your belief and your hope and your desperate love for life as it is actually unfolding has brought a blessing from a curse like water from a stone, like life from a tomb, like the actual story of God over and over. I would never try to tell you that every bad thing is really a good thing, just waiting to be gazed at with pretty new eyes, just waiting to be shined up into the discovered as fantastic. But what I know is that for me and for my friend John, and for a lot of other people I love, we're discovering that lots of times, not every time, maybe, but more often than not, there's something just past the heartbreak, just past the curse, just past the despair, And that thing is beautiful. You don't want it to be beautiful at first. You want to stay in the pain and the blackness because it feels familiar and because you're not done feeling victimized and smashed up. But one day you'll wake up surprised and humbled, staring at something you thought for sure was a curse. And it has revealed itself as to be a blessing, a beautiful, delicate blessing. There have been a thousand moments when I have felt the weight and the sadness of the season appropriately. But then there have been some moments where I have felt the blessing and the beauty of it too. Seeing your baby's face on the ultrasound eating ice cream with Aaron, having breakfast at Annette's and taking Spencer for a walk, walking on the pier by myself today at lunch at the Phoenix Street Cafe. There is a particular beauty in this season, not the obvious everything is perfect beauty, but a strange slanted pleasantness that surprises me and catches me in my throat like a sob or a song. Nothing good comes easily. You have to lose things you thought you loved, give up things that you thought you needed. You have to get over yourself, beyond your past, out from under the weight of your future. The good stuff never comes when things are easy. It comes when things are all heavily weighted down like moving trucks. It comes just when you think it never will, like a shimmering Las Vegas rising up out of the dry desert, sparkling and humming with energy, a blessing that rose up out of a bone-dry, dusty curse. Mm. Those words. So whether it's someone living with something chronic or whether it's the stress and anxiety of the world that's continuously pushing against you, or whether it's just you're going through a different hard season, maybe a death, a divorce, something. But I think her words resonate and they are so true. We can always find beauty. We can always find joy, something that can lift us up, a conversation, a friend, you know, a hobby that we find we can still do and love. But I think we do have to have that mindset in those acts of what are we grateful for every day? How are we going to show up today? because this day is a gift. So I would just leave you with that and I will see you back next episode. Once again, thanks for listening to the podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast, we would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts because that helps us get discovered by more people. We'd also love your feedback. So 
email me at Kristen at KristenFitch.com or DM me on Instagram. I'm at Kristen Fitch. And let me know what ideas or ideas for shows or for guests that you have. I would love to hear from you.